I still remember the the customer down in Stockbridge, Georgia, hauling Vidalia onions. I remember us chatting about onion hauling for a while. And uh, that was one of the best feelings I've ever had, just seeing that first sale in a company that, that I was working on where I was the CEO. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Work. This week, I'm joined by Devin Bostic. Devin is the founder and former CEO of Lucky Truck. Lucky Truck makes commercial insurance easy for trucking companies to buy and manage commercial trucking insurance through an all-in-one digital platform. Devin is also an active pre-seed investor through his investment fund, Paracosm Ventures, and teaches entrepreneurial design at the University of Colorado Boulder. This was a fun interview. Devin is incredibly reflective and gives a very honest description of what it's like to be a tech founder, the good, the bad, and everything in between. We talked about the lessons he learned raising capital, how he pulled himself out of the day-to-day, and why he ultimately chose to replace himself as the CEO. He gave a great perspective on this, and it's a topic that I don't see talked about all that much. Now, my favorite part of our conversation was talking through how Devin validated the idea he had for Lucky Truck. He gave us the playbook on how to bring an idea to life. Having been in the startup world my entire career, people with an idea for a business often ask me what they should do to get started. I will tell you this, this is the episode that I will now point them to. How Devin turned Lucky Truck from idea to an actual company was excellent. And it's such a good way to validate that you're on the right track. So with that, let's get to the show. Devin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colin. I feel we've had probably the most troubleshooting. So anyone that's ever done a podcast knows like, so you're going to lose some footage for some time. And I appreciate the patience that you've had going through this. It honestly reminds me of working on startups where you might lose a file or have to redo something. And there's a lot of learning every time you try it again. So thanks. <laughs> so true. I think we're experts at it at this point. <laughs> Here's where I want to start out. I want to hear the story of when you lost a $300,000 prototype. Oh, God, that definitely caused some stress for some people, including myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I was at this food tech startup called Init. So picture the Jetsons, like this smart kitchen that can like plug into recipes, tell like what food you have and make recommendation and then connect to like Amazon or something like that or Whole Foods. So they had an oven that also connected to that system that they had paid some people to prototype and we needed it for a demo. So they sent it from the, there was an office out in San Francisco, and then I was part of this New York office. We, we had a WeWork, but we had this demo space at, uh, at this company called called Perch, where we could show exactly how the oven could cook. And it could go through 42 cook steps to cook a chicken, and it had different technology. Well, I was tasked to take the oven after a series of demos 
to different investors and, and other relevant people. I like Jax Papin, if you know Jax Papin, the chef was there. Actually, Meryl Streep walked through at one point, so Neil deGrasse Tyson. So there were a lot of there were a lot of famous people checking out what was going on. And I passed the oven off to the UPS guy to ship it and thought it was one and done. And I hadn't really returned a lot of items at that point and just expected it to work. Well, it turns out he had a blurry image of the oven and I didn't get the confirmation code on where it was moving. You would think that for a $300,000 oven, I would have done that, but I didn't. And (laughs) (laughs) so my boss was Sam Cass, who was Obama chef in the White House and really busy guy with a lot going on. And I remember there was like this office room. I'm sitting with him and the COO of the company and then the head of of product experience who built a lot of the experience stuff on the prototype. And they're just looking at me and I was just trying to tell my narrative of how I was on hold with UPS and, and how I got this covered and UPS couldn't figure it out. So I then reached out to one of the head engineers out in California he used a deblurring software. He found the predicament quite unusual, but he used a deblurring software to take the barcode and make it so that we could read it. And we ended up using that and figuring out the oven was at LaGuardia. And then I contacted UPS and we got it back. But for a few days there, maybe a day and a half, two days, we were, uh, uh, especially me, I was pretty concerned with uh, finding the oven. So it's a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is, the engineer found this situation pretty atypical. <laughs> what was this guy? One, how did you even get a response from him? Did you just look this person up on LinkedIn in order to kind of figure this out? Or how did you find this person? The engineer? Yeah. He was actually internal in the team, but I didn't really know him. So I picture me slacking someone I've met maybe once and saying, hey, I need help with something. And then dropping it on him that I lost the prototype that was promoting the entire company. Okay, 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 okay. So this was an internal guy at your company. And also, just for clarification, there's only one prototype is my guess. Is that right? I think there was just one prototype. Okay, so there's one prototype. It's $300,000. And that is fantastic. I love that story. So I know New York was a big part of, of your entrepreneurial journey. Tell us a little bit about that. What was that like? How did you even kind of go on this entrepreneurial journey? What led you there to begin with? I was hungry. I, I moved to New York, borrowing a, a family minivan we had. I put all my stuff in a, in a locker in the Lower East Side. And then I got there and just started to try to figure out my career. I had interned in venture capital and I had grown up with an entrepreneur. So I had I had some adjacent information from that experience. But then in New York, my goal was to pick a few startups before starting my own company. So that typically meant I would join a startup. I joined like a food tech startup, the one that I just mentioned. Then I joined an insurance tech startup. I briefly helped a few friends on their startups, or I helped this other guy on this other financial services startup for a bit. And I was going to meetups and events. And then I would go into these modes like a few times a year where I'd rapidly try to figure out an idea. And I did that probably a dozen times. Until one day I was at Coverwall at uh, this insure tech, small business insurance platform in New York, and saw an opportunity to tap into the trucking vertical and provide this digital insurance platform. But I would constantly go on walks throughout New York. And New York is obviously an incredible place of stimuli where you, you just run into a lot of different ideas. So it was just a great spot to gain exposure to different ideas that people would come up with. Yeah, I love that. 
after the food tech startup with a $300,000 prototype, you went to an insurance company next. It was just the most logical move of all time. <laughs> I was really into poetry, so. <laughs> I love it. Why New York instead of San Francisco? I was already on the East Coast and I'd been in New York a few times. And I just remember the first time going there, a friend who was a, a little bit older, we went out, I just met a bunch of different people and I just found the energy extremely exciting. I hadn't been to San Francisco yet. So it was less about, let's go to San Francisco and test it. It was more around New York felt right. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, totally. I love New York. Always been a, a huge fan. So you got this experience at these different startups, had the itch to create your own or, or walking around the Lower East Side, trying to come up with different ideas. And you settled on trucking insurance with Lucky Truck. Why was that? Why was that the one that really stuck with you? When I was at CoverWallet, I really learned to appreciate that timing is a large part of building a startup. So I saw where there were companies like CoverWallet, another one was Mbroker, and there was an even older one called Insurion. And then there were some newer startups that occurred after CoverWallet. But what I realized was that insurance, when it could focus on one area, could be highly effective, especially when marketing costs could be quite high if you're trying to pull in a bunch of different verticals depending on your strategy. So that's where I was interested in doing something with an insurance. I like that CoverWallet was customer facing. So you could take a percentage of the insurance transaction. So there was a very obvious revenue gain. And in trucking, I was looking at some other areas. Cyber is a huge consideration. And that's obviously growing and growing and growing. And I found healthcare interesting and how, especially in the rise of different robots and whatnot helping healthcare professionals. But I saw a, real, a really unique opportunity in trucking where you have, well, one, a ton of truckers. There's truckers going any highway. There's truckers everywhere. And, and they're mostly small businesses. Something like 97% are businesses under 20 trucks. So I saw an opportunity because I was researching different verticals and saw an opportunity where trucking could use a customer-facing platform to make the transaction a lot easier. And in my research, I actually found a few books written by truckers and also some textbooks on the history of trucking and trucking insurance and converted them into an audio file and had a lot of fun just like walking around New York. I was a New York sports club member at the time that they're like a mid-level budget gym in New York. And I would just go there and just listen to different aspects of trucking. And the more I got into it, I became really interested in it. Then I ended up calling a few hundred truckers a lot of their information is available online and only a, a small percentage really engaged with me. But like the more I engaged with them, the more I got really excited about the opportunity. What were those calls like? Because are you catching them when they're on the road or? Yeah, they're on the road. <laughs> yeah, it's something like you're calling someone who's getting lots of calls because so much trucking's done over the phone, like the dispatchers calling them, the all kinds of people are calling them. And so I would call them and, and you get you get someone who would answer the phone and be like, hey, hey this is so-and-so, uh, uh, what's going on? And I'd be like, hi, I'm Devin. And uh, I'm currently looking into challenges. And do you, would you mind just chatting for a minute uh, about challenges with an insurance? And people would be willing to talk to you. And you'd hear things like, I have to work with my broker and and they're just unreliable. I hate that I have to wait for things. I was like, and I and there I am like frothing at the mouth, hearing terms like wait for things, manual transaction, and then I just sat down and started to draw out a diagram of, well, how could we take this manual process and start to put it into a digital model? And I, I went online and 
pretended I was a trucker for some insurance brokerages and just to try to see how the current process worked. And then I went back and deconstructed it and basically started out with a basic trucking brokerage and then built in technology and slowly automated the different functions. But I purposely started with the brokerage to understand how the current market operated. And then that helped me prioritize the product roadmap. You know, what's so interesting about all of this is I love every single thing that you just said there. You know, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I get asked this quite a bit on if I have this idea, I want to start a company, how do I go about doing this? And the first thing that I say is go do 20 customer interviews. And I didn't make this up, right? Jason Lemkin has talked about this forever. But what you just said is the absolute best and number one thing that you should do if you want to start a company. You can go get everybody else's opinions all day long. But until you hear it directly from your customers, and usually it's whatever you start out with, it ends up being something that's like a couple degrees away from that, uh, that you find you start to drill in on kind of what the, the main problem is. So I think that's great. To that point, is that typically where you'll point entrepreneurs when they ask you that question of how do I go about starting this kind of business? Totally. So when, when I joined CoverWallet, I had grown up, my dad was a very sales-focused entrepreneur, and some entrepreneurs are more tech-focused and so on. And what I really learned from him was that through selling, you could really understand someone's problems, especially by active listening. But I was also horrible at selling. So I joined CoverWallet, and my goal was to do that for a year or two, just to figure out how to sell products. And it was really interesting selling insurance, because you get all kinds of different requests coming in. Like At one point, I remember someone called in, and they were doing like, ghost hunting. They needed like an errors and emissions policy in case they created errors. And I found that really uh, philosophically fascinating. Classic. That's a classic risk of ghost hunting. <laughs> what I saw was like, in CoverWall was interesting because the platform in a lot of ways was a sales enablement and service enablement software where a lot of transactions were a combination of both manual and automated flows for the customer where you may help the customer over the phone on something, or they may go into the platform for a different request. What I learned from that was that salespeople are, are not to be underestimated. A lot of salespeople have a ton of vision. They don't always know. Like Some are really good at structuring it, some don't. But I found a lot of value in just chatting with salespeople. So when I was selling, and then when I started Lucky Truck, I found that by just being the salesperson in the early days, closing a few deals, I wasn't by no means was I good at selling commercial truck insurance. I was okay at it, but it helped me learn how to frame the problem and the solution, what sound bites made sense, and also how to gather information around different pain points where you might be on a call and then start to build some rapport with the customer and then start to ask them questions about their business. And then I feel like that's when I would get insight and then I would take that insight and then ask other customers similar questions. And if I, if I sensed a pattern, I'd then try to figure out how could I take what I saw as a problem and structure it into a platform-oriented solution that was adjacent to the current business offering? And one of the things that you hit, and I'm biased, of course, right? You know, my whole career has been in, in sales and in leading sales teams. But one thing that, you know, a key thing that I think is awesome that you picked up on is that the best salespeople operate exactly how you just mentioned. The best salespeople, the, one of the better quotes I've ever heard on this is, they can be a consultant in their prospects industry. They know their prospects industry so well that they can consult them on it. That is the level. Like That's what separates the best from everybody else. It's not the, I've got all the closing tactics and everything else, which is typically the things that are portrayed. 
It's that I know your business as well as you do. In my particular area, I know it better than you do. I can listen to your pains and I can provide a different type of solution in order to help you solve it. So I think that's excellent. One of the things I'm curious about is, so you came in here, you started to, you validated the problem, you did your customer interviews, you did your secret shopping. When did you start turning this thing into revenue? So I remember uh, we made our first sale in, uh, on March 2nd, 2020. And we had had a false start on trying to build the platform. That's a long story. I, didn't, I had never built software before. So I tried to build the platform three times before finally uh, really getting it going. But I remember the early revenue I saw was crucial for business survival, especially being a founder without a track record and without really understanding how to raise capital. So I needed time to learn and the revenue provided that cushion. But we went after revenue. We started going after revenue in the second month. And then we got our first sale a few weeks later, maybe like two and a half weeks into starting the sell. I still remember the, the customer down in Stockbridge, Georgia, hauling Vidalia onions. I remember us chatting about onion hauling for a while. And uh, that was one of the best feelings I've ever had, just seeing that first sale in a company that, that I was working on where I was the CEO. Was it more just like I was able to do this? Was it that this person took a chance on me? Or what was it? Like what led to that feeling? It was a sense of community feeling where, as we covered a minute ago on on salespeople, you know, we felt a rapport with this person and they liked what we were working on and decided to purchase a policy through us. And then and then over the next year, as well as several other early customers, I would chat with them on a regular basis and just check in with their business and just hear them out. Uh, it could be anything from fuel prices are up or they're frustrated with their dispatcher, or I would ask them about how the insurance is going and you, you get blunt feedback. And the first sales were really clunky. There were lots of issues. There were a lot of, uh, especially on the, the service side, truckers, because their insurance and risk is so tied to their core business, them moving around, and their margins are so low and shippers have different requirements. Truckers tend to, even the one truck companies will switch things on their insurance on a monthly basis. So you got to be ready. It was interesting in the early days because I sold some of these policies unanticipating the amount of service required due to like those uh, different forces. There was an inherent messiness. I was our customer support in the first seven or eight months and was doing the transactions myself. So when it came to like our CRM, I had a lot of opinions on like what I thought worked and what didn't. And when it came to like our call system, I had other opinions on like how well the call system connected to the CRM and how text was enabled or other calling features. But it was all around like, how can I support a certain level of customer experience while continuing to grow the company and not getting totally bogged down by by the requirements of service? So it was it was very interesting in that sense. And it was also really helpful in working with a few early customers who felt that sense of community feeling and wanted to wanted us to succeed because it helped them operate better. How did you get out of that? How did you fix that, right? So in, if I'm playing that back, it's you got these first couple sales, were super excited about it, did not anticipate that how much this was, how much it was going to cost and time and resources to service these business and keep these customers happy. How did you solve that challenge? It was a very tiring period. I was working nonstop, <laughs> especially during business hours. It's inherently jumpy. Like you're trying to do a whole host of different tasks. Like 
say you're trying to like edit an Excel file or put a deck together or do other app or put a marketing plan together or different aspects of the business. And then all of a sudden needing to get on a call because the trucker needs stuff right now. And you don't want to like leave them hanging. And you got to make sacrifices going both ways, which may mean that you miss a certain number of calls. But like, that that's also not a good look. So like, you hear about larger organizations creating like a, a SLA or a service level agreement. And like, you work with us, here's like our turnaround time. Like, it's interesting to try to uphold an SLA when it's personally guided. And you're also getting fire hosed by all of the additional opportunities that come with growing any business. It was a lot of work. <laughs> was there something in particular that changed, whether that was hiring people, whether that was prioritization and saying no to certain things in order to say yes to others. But was there anything that you can think of that really was the turning point for that? The best decision I made was I hired a remote secretary. Her name is Irish, and she uh, was absolutely phenomenal. She took a lot of work off my plate, helped me with things like do industry research or figure out aspects of the market. Like I'd have her do a whole project on fuel cards. I'd have her basically do things that would take a while that I felt necessary for my own understanding. And by doing that, especially in the early days, she was offshore, so a lot more affordable than hiring someone onshore. She provided phenomenal work and truly helped me during the bootstrap phase delegate some of my tasks so that I could get a lot more done. So I'm really curious about this. You know, sometimes I go back and forth on this. I go back and forth where sometimes I can see it's like, oh, I've got these X amount of tasks that they can work on. But once those are done, I don't know what I'm necessarily going to have. But everybody that I talk to says, do it. You will find you will find work for them to do. What's your take on that? It certainly takes practice and like working with any teammate and also clear definition. That's where I found as a founder I basically had a Trello board where the first column was vision and goals. So it helped me understand just constant reminders around here's where we're going, here's where we want to go. And that stuff can change, it can tweak, but at least I had a direction. The next column was a backlog column of stuff that was probably good to do or necessary, but it just wasn't quite ready to be structured. I then had four columns in the Trello board. I had important, urgent, not in, uh, then I had not important, urgent, and then I had important but not urgent, could be something like taxes if those aren't coming up for a while. And then in the last column, it was just not urgent. And like, and then finally, there was like a completed column. But while I wouldn't do a lot of the not important task, the prioritization helped me stay on tasks that are urgent and are important or continue to think about placing stuff that is going to be important and assessing if it's really important right now. I saw that and like you hear about principles like the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, where 20% of your tasks give you 80% of the output. And like whether or not it's that it is 20 and 80 or 15 and 85 or something different, I really felt that when I was building Lucky Truck, where some tasks had a lot more leverage over others. So when I worked with Irish, she would help me with stuff like, especially year two and three into the business, I'd send her things like, hey, can you calculate a cohort curve where I'd send some of the loose data before we had like Looker automating certain aspects of it. So she'd help me with like some Excel modeling or weekly metrics updates so that we could scorecard metrics. When we were doing fundraising, I'd ask her to do briefing notes on who I was meeting with in order to build rapport with them when I first met with them or understand their bias. Or or even like say we're, we're meeting with a, a fund, I'd ask her to just look up the progress of some of the investments to help me understand where I think this fund's head's at. So stuff like that. And I think part of it for me 
there's an inherent productivity in her help. And there's also an inherent just overall soup of creativity where she would take some of the research off of my plate and I would quickly look at some of it. But by doing that, I would have more hours to decompress. And I definitely think it's challenging when you're working all the time to continue to feel uh, fresh and keep the fatigue down. I think if you let the fatigue get too high, then you can start to make decisions that may not be optimal. So that's where there's definitely an admittance of I'm only human. And, and especially now, if I have like a big decision coming up, I'll try to not make the day leading up to it as busy just so I have time to really think through it because that decision could have influence over the next six months or years to come. And and that's where having someone on the side to help was just a constant optimization around how we work together as a team and then understanding like what was in scope and what was out of scope. And then it was a great example of me in the CEO role needing to structure roles and responsibilities by person. And and at times, like she would also come with different ideas and say, hey, I see this. Do you want me to work on it? And it may have been something that I didn't anticipate. So there was always two ways in that feedback loop. Yeah. So it sounds like starting to get some help and being economical about it, using somebody, as you mentioned, that was uh, offshore to help with that while you were bootstrapped. When did you decide to raise capital? I decided to raise capital when I started the business because we had no money. And I have a lot of opinions on raising capital now. So at Lucky Truck, I really wanted to get a seed round done. As I mentioned, I'd interned at a venture fund back in 2013. So I had been on the other side of that very briefly as on that side. Then I'd worked for an investment bank where I was helping different private equity funds and debt funds raise money. So I saw a little bit of adjacency there as well. But I'd never really been in the room with VCs pitching to them directly. So I think I failed on our first 150 pitches. And... <laughs> Yeah, for those of you, if you are listening and, and I failed in the pitch, thanks for taking it. But <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't understand what I was doing. And, I, and it was really hard for me to give a consolidated vision right away because I hadn't practiced doing that. I, I would constantly try to, there's old meat factory metaphor where it's like, show the sausage sizzling, don't show how it's made. And I kept trying to show everyone how the sausage is made and walk them through the factory and say, why we built this structure. That, and I'd lose people. They wouldn't care. They'd, they'd be like, well, you can always hire a new product manager. We want to know about intrinsic aspects of why you, why are you the person to solve this? Is this really a big market opportunity? And why is the timing so good? And those were really the three questions that as I went through different raises, I've learned so critical. So why now? Why you? And then is it really that big of an opportunity? So we redid the deck a bunch of times. Uh, we probably redid the deck 50 times. And in the beginning, I tried to do the design. It was horrible. And then I went on Upwork and found someone to do that for 25 bucks an hour. And, and then it was better. And then we finally had uh, a Silicon Valley type designer take a crack at the deck and polish it up and, and also help with the overall communications. They had done that kind of work for other fundraisers. So they knew what they were getting into. But there was one of the guys at uh, Partners over at Cincy Tech once told me, you're never going to like your deck. I saw it as a challenge. And I really tried to love our deck at some point. And I never did. And I, I didn't love it because there were always investors who found different loopholes, especially uh, there's a book, Venture Deals by Brad Feld, I'm sure you know, where he breaks investors into three categories. There's the curmudgeons who like to tell you why, why you're wrong. Or you know, there, there's those types of investors. Then there's the... Uh, the agreeable people who might want to be your friend but might not invest. And then there's the technical people, the analysts too, might want to get into the weeds. But I found that 
it's hard to find a deck that just simply works. You have different personality types and all of that. But when I started to raise capital, I realized that, and I'm telling you all the context here, and that raising capital is such a social activity where you're trying to get different stakeholders as different fiduciaries with different interests into the same company. And it really puts stresses both positive and negative on the business. It definitely puts a lot of pressure on growth, as you definitely see with the work that you do. And like going into it, I didn't really realize that. And now I realize how milestone-based fundraising is and how important it is to have a narrative around the milestones that are required. And, and then how important it is to update people well in advance, where you're saying, here's where we're going in 12 months. And if they like the plan and you can show that you continue to hit different uh, stated objectives, that's a pretty strong signal. And then the last thing I learned was in the beginning, I would try to just go out and be friends with the investor and, and chat with them and see if I could convince them this was a great idea. But one of our advisors, a guy named Alex Levin, mentioned to me, like, you're only raising or you're not. Don't ever half raise. And it makes so much sense, especially now where you want to create a group of investors at the same time so that you have enough leverage to optimize the economics and then the controlling terms in the term sheet that they provide. You don't want just one investor with all the leverage who knows it to give you a certain type of term sheet. And some investors won't necessarily throw you a, a vulture term sheet because they know that that's going to make it harder to raise additional capital, but others won't. So that's for now. I appreciate you raising or you're not. One of the, the biggest things that I, I see founders struggle with, especially in the early stages, is, is that balancing act. In the early days, you're still very much operating the business. It's highly doubtful that you have a COO until series B, C even, um, where somebody's really operating the business like that. And if you're doing a lot of fundraising, you're going to be always kind of pulled in multiple directions. I think that's great advice for sure. So once you raised capital and you really started to hit that run phase, how did things change for you? How did things change for Lucky Truck? What did that look like? So it was the first time I had a board and, and the board was interesting. And every member, it was actually their first board. We'd raise money from a company called Sirius Point that is a public company where they had uh, or they have a, an investment arm where they'll invest in different insure tax. And a lot of the time they'll provide different investment, uh, different insurance capacity if, if you're like an MGA or your insurance carrier, et cetera. It was really interesting having a board member with, with that background. And then also Julie Zimmer, who's CEO now, where she had been the CEO at Mbroker. And I asked her to come in as an independent to basically help me figure out how to optimize the operations for the company. I wasn't really struggling. After getting our round done, I learned so much about fundraising. I felt better there. I was decent at wooing employees inward. And I had a lot of ideas. And I loved to work on the product. And, and I was decent at figuring out like sales flows and whatnot. But I hadn't really run a business before. So I didn't really understand all of that. So when we raised the money, there was a bit of this awkward first few board meeting period where I was learning how to put a plan together and then offer it to the board. And that's where I really appreciate now the, the different fiduciaries. We almost have this hourglass-like model where the top of the hourglass is the board, which is representing the shareholders. And the bottom of the hourglass is the employees and the customers and the other side. And like at times like I say it's an hourglass because the interest can be divergent where the board may want to optimize certain margins, like getting the marketing spend down, but revenue up. And the employees may want raises and the customers may want faster service time. And, and those both obviously cost money. So that's where 
just understanding how to juggle that and then positioning the structure of the company to the board to have them stress test it was something that I definitely struggled with in the early days. And and I learned a lot about it and, and then studying the topic quite extensively in order to improve it. But I highlight that towards your question because that's where the CEO's job is to execute on a vision. And once you raise money, you did promise different forecasts to the investor. And a lot of investors know that pretty much every company misses their forecast, but you still really want to try to hit them and definitely exceed them. So that's where it was different growing the company in figuring out how to delegate activities. That's where we created a list. Uh, Julie, who I just mentioned, who came over from, she was actually heading insurance at Flexport after Embroker. Now she's the CEO of Lucky Truck. But she came over and, and took some of the Amazon-style long-range planning and Amazon-style framework that Flexport had adopted. And we created like a list of roles and responsibilities. We, we redid parts of the org chart. And then we created uh, a few adjustments in how we looked at, at KPIs, which are output-based metrics, and OKRs, which are input-based metrics. So like a KPI, if anyone uh, wants context on that, could be like, we want to grow revenue by this amount. Whereas an OKR could be like, we want to improve functionality around like the engineering team's capabilities. So it's a little bit more input-based, whereas the other one's a bit more output-based. But yeah, there's the answer for you. I love it. You gave it like 30 good examples on that. So you brought in Julie to be the CEO. And you talked about this quite a bit. And of course, you introduced Julie and Julie's been on the, the podcast as well. And she's excellent. What led to that decision for you? So when I started the business, I had just turned 26. And I felt this deep need to successfully build, grow and exit a startup. And I saw truck insurance as the first one of several. And it was an interesting situation in that we had raised capital in the fall a year before Julie came. And the trucking market wasn't quite as friendly. And we also had, with any startup, we had our own internal challenges. So we were growing revenue. I think we did something like we doubled it or got it to two and a half times what it was, something like that. We were still missing our projections. And I found that I was calling Julie nonstop for advice. I had met her a few years prior in New York at the Insurance Insights event. I basically said, hey, do you mind if I call you? here and there. And she said, yeah. So I would come with preset questions. I would call her once every two weeks. We had like a regular meeting. And over the years, she really got to understand Lucky Truck. We were growing and I was trying to do a ton of different things at the same time. I also hired a few VPs and was delegating a lot of the activities that I was doing to them. You know, I was running payroll. I was doing financial modeling. I was doing parts of our product roadmap with Adam, the VP of product. I was doing like literally touching everything like all the time. Then I hired VPs. And when I started the business, I didn't have any management experience. I was always a direct contributor. So at, at like a bank or at a startup, I never had like a team under me. So there was a lot of learning curve in figuring out how to get people into the right processes. And that's where I was really, really impressed. And Julie really mentored me on how to understand a team. And I actually asked her twice. I said, do you want to be CEO? When she finally said yes, I then approached our board. She was on it. So there was a humor there. But I basically approached the board member from Serious Point and said, hey, here's an idea. What do you think? The idea was received well. And I was very happy with it. I was struggling to grow revenue based on the projections. So I felt a sense of insecurity. And I was being very hard on myself. And I saw Julie coming over is a great way to learn. 
and also a way to de-risk the business as well as all of the attributes that Julie's brand brings in. Being at Flexport, she had learned a ton about shipping. They have, I think, like something like 20,000 or they have a bunch of trucks that work with the Flexport platform. So it was intuitive for her as an industry leader to come over. And basically, I proactively told the board I was going to give up some of my equity to her to keep her incentivized. It's interesting looking at other examples, but I think equity is you know, typically a great in- incentive. And I really wanted Julie as a CEO to have enough incentive. And then after working with Julie for really, I, I left in March 2023, she became CEO in, in October, in the first week of October in 2022. We realized pretty quickly that one, I had trouble giving up control in terms of the CEO responsibilities. And then yeah, as the founder, I was like, this is my baby. I started this thing. It's really hard for me to not play a little bit of dictator at the time and say, we're doing this. It's just what we're doing and try to in a way that's like, you know, socially nice, but firm. Julie and I were actually in her pla- at her place in Chicago working for the week. And I basically said to her, we're arguing a lot. Maybe I should shift to like advisor or something. And and she agreed with the decision. It gave her a lot of room to breathe. So then I, I basically decided to leave the business based on that. Which I can't imagine how tough of a decision that was internally. And you talked about it. You talked about how you felt that a lot of that was the right move to do, but it was really difficult because this was your baby. Now that you've kind of had this chance to, and we've, of course, spoke quite a bit in between uh, the times that this has happened. You know, I look at a lot of the stuff that you kind of post on LinkedIn and a lot of these reflections. What are some of those things that you've taken away now when you look back at that? So I think the mind having a physical presence within in the body, say it's a combination of, of electricity across different nodes and neural nets and whatever it is. It's like any other, any other part of the body where if you train it, it will go through changes or if you abuse it, it might need time to recover. And what I felt from Lucky Truck was that I needed a break to just process everything. And because it's hard when you're going all the time, like I would take vacations here and there to decompress, but like, you're always thinking, at least for me, I was always thinking about aspects of the business. I didn't have a lot of discipline and just turning off and losing myself in a novel or doing something to decompress. I was, I saw it as like, if I take these few years and work like crazy, I can produce like exponential results that will have lifelong positive implications. That also, it took a toll and I felt very mentally tired. And I spent time, I actually was spending time working with a coach who works with different founders. And we just went through different beliefs and perceptions. We met an hour a week for three months and just drew out, here's the circumstance, like capital raising. And then how am I feeling? How am I thinking based on that? And then based on that, like what actions do I take? And then based on those actions, what results do I take? I just spent a lot of time restructuring parts of that. Like there were definitely times at Lucky Truck where I would be really stressed and I'd I'd then call a friend and have some pints and order like a late night burrito. And, but I was also healthy to a degree. I wasn't entirely unhealthy, but I think that what I really learned after leaving Lucky Truck and working with a coach who specialized in helping founders gain like a broader sense of self-acceptance, happiness, and different positive attributes was the power and mental modeling how circumstance affects one's perception and how those beliefs are created. What I learned from the experience was how to really cut through all the labeling, such as like branding around a fund or where someone went to school or aspects of the customer that may be biasing how I'm seeing it based on my own experiences 
and to really listen a lot better, not only to myself, but also to the people that I engage with. And a lot of my posts have just been thoughts around that. And I realize a lot of my posts may have errors in them where years later, I realize, wow, I don't believe that anymore. But I was posting and I always try to caveat different posts with here's stuff that I'm thinking about. If it's interesting, I'm finding it meaningful in the context of building a company. So therefore, like, here's some information on what I was thinking. You know, it's so interesting that you say exactly what you just said. One, I appreciate you sharing all that just in general. And I can empathize with that, especially of like never being able to not think about it. It's really, 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 really tough to disconnect. And the thing that you mentioned specifically, and I just wrote coincidentally a newsletter that went out Tuesday on this. And I talked about how one month ago, I wrote a post on LinkedIn that said, you know, essentially, I've brought in more deals at the hotel bar than I ever had the trade show booth, right? And I was at uh, InsureTech Connect, which is a big, you know, this conference, but for our listeners, it's a, it's a big conference in the InsureTech space. About one week before that, I was in the ER with some stomach issues and the doctor's like, yeah, you're not going to be able to drink. And I'm like, I've never done a conference in 15 years of being in sales without drinking. So I had a ton of anxiety around this. I'm like, I don't, what are people going to think? You know, how, am I like, is this going to be a waste of money? Because now that I'm a business owner, I care about how much I spend on conferences. And then I went, so I was like, okay, I'm going to make an experiment out of this. Went to the conference, uh, of course, didn't drink. And I did everything the total opposite. I met with people early. I went to sleep after the dinners. And I went to the trade show floor early when there was hardly anybody in there. Ended up being one of the most productive conferences I've ever had. And not but one month ago, I literally posted I've closed more deals at the hotel bar than I have at the trade show booth. So at any rate, that's a long-winded way of saying like I think that's such good advice in that it's okay to change your opinion when you got new information. I think that's excellent. Totally. It's on the flip side of your story, I remember when I was at the height of switching over from CEO to president and feeling the disappointment, I was really disappointed in the progress. Like Lucky Truck had done well, but it, it didn't hit my personal goals. So I felt a sense of failure in my own execution. But I was at ITC and definitely met up with some founder friends and partied a little bit each night. And I missed a lot of opportunity from doing that. So I had the reverse learning lesson from you. But, you know, you, I feel like you got to accept it. It's like it was, a, it was a fun week and I look back to it fondly, but <laughs> you, you learn from these things. So, yeah. And I said the newsletter for me, it was like very much not a it was not a post of like, don't drink. Like I'm the last person to ever like uh, yeah. to say anything <laughs> to everybody. But it is more of, you know, your previous assumptions can be wrong and you don't know how things are necessarily going to go. And as you get new more information, it's okay to change your mind uh, based off of new perspective, which I love that. I, and I love the story of how it kind of changed and once you got together with other founder friends at ITC. I think that's fantastic. So, Devin, last question I have for you is... You know, I know we could talk all day and talk about I know you're getting back in the game and I'm not surprised to hear that. Like when I hear about the passion that you have for founding companies and especially then that early stage and how you did this walking around New York and and calling a hundred truckers. That'll be the thing I'm I probably <laughs> will of course outside of the prototype, but like that will be the thing that's like, listen to this, right? Like that's where if people ask me, point them to this episode to hear that part. The secret shopping, like that's how you're really going to get to the root of whatever it is. But if you could have a conversation with your younger self, 
What would that conversation be? What advice would you give them? I would start by handing my younger self. There's a book called The Courage to be Disliked. In The Courage to be Disliked, it's about the story of Alfred Adler, where it's this Japanese professor and one of his students really liked what he was saying and turned his lectures into a novel. And in the book, he basically says that humans are happiness or happiest when they create community feeling. He says that most human problems are interpersonal problems, that if, say, you die at 40 and the average age is 70, well, that's a relative problem. You died young. But if you went back thousands of years, that would have been older. So you had an old, happy life potentially at 40. And that's where he basically says in order to be happy, it's really important that you freely opt into different tasks and that you separate your task from your relationships. And that way he says that every human is equal but not the same and that everybody's walking on their own horizontal timeline. So picture everybody just focusing on their tasks, doing it great, and not being comparative. And that's where I think a lot of the errors that, that I made in comparing myself with other people and comparing where I raised capital or what higher I got or am I actually solving a really important problem or, or just other insecurities around my abilities. On the flip side, I think the insecurities drove me to improve. So there's definitely a, a bit of motivation from the fear. And then there's also motivation from the hope. But I think I would have been a lot happier if I had realized at a younger age that one's ability to wake up and look at what they have, and that's what Adler calls teleology, is often more productive than constantly obsessing about what happened in the past, which is etiology. And like things like status are often past assessments because you're looking back at what people have already done instead of showing up and going forward. And in, in a final comment I'll make there is I, I played D1 tennis back in college and I didn't play for necessarily like a top school or anything like that, but I still had a D1 level of activity. And it really helped me appreciate one's ability to lose and then forget about it and then show up at the next, like meaning you learn from it, but you don't dwell on it. But show up again, get up to the line, plan your shots out, and try to execute. And that's where I really connect that back to Adler and that I would tell myself to forgive the self more and to continue to recalibrate and focus on here are the assets I have in front of me. How can I take them and build something new? That's in line with what I want to do. Yeah. I think that's such good advice. And you know, you talked about comparison and there's a zillion quotes on comparison, but the the thing that, you know, and I, you were kind of talking about this, but with that comparison trap, the biggest challenges like you could never win it because the second if you're comparing yourself to one person and you get to that point there's always going to be another example that you'll start chasing again you never win that game and i i know that because i played it personally like just so you mentioned i played it uh the same exact way and it always feels like you're never enough and it's hard to ever get there Totally. And then you realize that your values are different than the person you're comparing to because they have to be. You have a different life experience. So it's apples to oranges anyway. It's just stories inside one's head. I love it. Devin, thanks for coming on, man. This has been excellent. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Callan. Yeah, absolutely, brother. I hope you enjoyed Devin and I's conversation. The story of Devin calling 100 truckers hit home with me. There is no substitute for the value you get when you talk directly to your ideal customers. If you want to learn more about Devin, you can find him on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you can find me on LinkedIn to let me know. 
And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.